Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Caitlin Myers, the John G. McCullough Professor of Economics at Middlebury College, and also a research fellow at IZA, the Institute of Labor Economics. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, happy to have you on and glad we were able to schedule this. Today, we're going to talk about your forthcoming article in JPAM entitled Forecasts for a Post-Row America, the Effects of Increased Travel Distance on Abortions and Births. I'm sure that many of our listeners have heard about the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, which is sometimes referred to as the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, and that decision came in 2022. So we're going to talk about what the Dobbs case was about and the decision and how it relates to the Roe versus Wade decision. What's the background there on all of this? Yeah, um, well, the background is rather large. So I think to really explain the Dobbs decision, we need to go all the way back to the to the 19th century. Okay. So in the colonial era, through the first half of the 19th century, abortion was generally legal under common law precedent prior to quickening, which is an old-fashioned term for when a pregnant person can start to feel fetal movement. Then around the 1850s, for a variety of reasons, including a big movement from the new American Medical Association, there was a political push to begin to regulate abortion, and in particular to make abortion not legal. So that it took about 50 years for all of the states kind of get on board. But by the turn of the 20th century, abortion was outlawed in all U.S. states under most circumstances. And that really was the case all the way up until the 1960s when there was this women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, a youth rights movement. There's a lot of pressure for social change and policy change. And with it came movements to increase reproductive autonomy and to liberalize abortion laws. That's the context that kind of immediately precedes the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Roe v. Wade. So in the 60s, some states are starting to relax their abortion restrictions to allow abortion under certain limited circumstances. A few states are actually repealing their abortion bans altogether and making it legal. And then in 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court says 
we're going to recognize a constitutional right to privacy that extends to the right to a pre-viability abortion. And basically what the Supreme Court is saying is that all of those state bans on abortions that have been in effect for, in most states, about a century, have been invalidated. And so Roe v. Wade really marks the moment in 1973 that legal abortion becomes available in all U.S. states again. Okay. Now, that's obviously not the end of the story about abortion access, this decision 50 years ago. But what happens in the aftermath of Roe is that really there's this kind of jockeying and policymaking and lawsuit filing to try to figure out exactly what the parameters are of states to regulate abortion. And if your listeners will forgive me for really kind of glossing over 50 really important years of abortion policy, this all comes to a head in 2022 when Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health comes to the U.S. Supreme Court. This was clearly the moment when Roe was potentially going to be overturned and, in fact, was overturned. And so what the Supreme Court decided in Dobbs last year was they were ostensibly considering a abortion ban in Mississippi that was a 15-week gestational age ban. So it wasn't an outright ban. It was a ban that said abortion will not be legal in this state except for under very limited circumstances after 15 weeks gestation. Now, that clearly violated the the Roe decision and other decisions that had followed it. And it was, I think, well understood by everyone and certainly by the plaintiffs in the case that they were challenging Roe. And when the Supreme okay. Court heard the case, they did overturn this 50-year-old precedent. They overturned Roe. And the effect was to return this very substantial regulatory power to the states. So again, for the first time in 50 years, individual states have the power to ban abortion. And and that's the fundamental implication of the Dobbs ruling is that now yes states can make those decisions and I guess somewhat obviously maybe but the the states the political party and power in the states is going to influence sort of how aggressive any abortion bans might be. Presumably that's true. I mean, it kind of, it it opens really interesting set of policy options for states. So Mm -hmm. 13 states had enacted what are called trigger bans before the Dobbs, well before the Dobbs decision, before the Dobbs case actually even came to the Supreme Court for most of them. Those trigger bans were explicitly designed to ban abortion the moment or shortly after a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe. So some states had already legislated, like the parties who were in power in their legislatures had already legislated this to, to be to be ready, so to speak. What's interesting is that in other states, they still had their pre-Roe bans, like these 19th century laws. They still had them on the books. They never repealed them. They just weren't enforcing them because they weren't enforceable under Roe. So what's really interesting is in other states, in a, in a lot of ways, it's up to regulatory authorities like attorney generals, right? They already have the law. The question is, will they enforce it? I think that's a, a an important, somewhat subtle point that a lot of people, um, including myself, I don't think fully realize that there could be all, just, just because a law is ruled unconstitutional doesn't necessarily mean that the state or jurisdiction repealed the law. They can just stop enforcing it 
And, and that's fine. Correct. They can stop enforcing it. And they can also, as we saw in the trigger states, enact laws that would be unconstitutional to enforce at that time, but that are designed to go into effect should the Supreme Court ruling, uh, you know, allow them to enforce it. And and just to be clear, there are other states that have enacted bans since Dobbs. It's a fascinating and rather confusing, I would say, storm of policy activity. There are a lot of different paths states can take to substantially limiting abortion access in the aftermath of Dobbs. Do you have a rough idea of how many states had a trigger law sort of already there, you know, waiting for this decision? 13 states had trigger bans. They're called trigger bans usually already in effect. It depends on how you, for the pre-row bans, it's interesting. It depends on how you count. So I don't have a clean number for you to say it's this many um, because there's there's kind of some aspects of the law you have to decide whether you want to count. The Center for Reproductive Rights has and continues to publish really interesting surveys of, of pre-row bans. Then in terms of the implications for people of Dobbs ruling, people women of childbearing age are potentially affected in those states that had some sort of trigger ban waiting or that passed a law in response to the Dobbs ruling. Your study is really about the impact and the projected impact of this Dobbs ruling on access to abortions. And a common way that access is measured in your study and in some others that we'll talk about is the distance or, or specifically the driving distance to the nearest legal abortion clinic. Could you give us an overview of what does the typical driving distance look like? And I'm sure that's very different in different parts of the country. But what did that look like before Dobbs? And then how are we anticipating that Dobbs is going to change individuals' access to these clinics? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you're exactly right to imagine that Travel distance looked different in different parts of the country even before Dobbs. That is correct. And this is certainly a moment in a podcast where one wishes I, you know, I could I could magically display maps in front of listeners. So I will kind of shout out to the paper I have forthcoming in JPAM if you'd like to see a map of exactly what driving distances looked like in different counties prior to the decision. It's in there. But just to describe it, prior to the Dobbs decision. The average American woman of childbearing age, which I'll use a standard demographic definition of aged 15 to 44, the average American woman of childbearing age was about 25 miles from the nearest abortion facility, a facility where abortions were provided and where they were publicly advertising these services. You could find them in a phone book or online. Less than 1% of American women were more than 200 miles from the nearest abortion facility. Now, that did vary across the country. There were pockets of the Great Plains, of other rural areas, particularly in the West, where distances were a lot longer than 25 miles. But most urban areas in the U.S. where the majority of the population lives had nearby abortion facilities before Dobbs. And the effect of Dobbs, as these bans start to take effect following Dobbs, Facilities are closing, and what we're seeing is tremendous impacts on travel distance for people primarily who live in these banned states. And so a, a typical increase might make it sort of infeasible or impractical to even go? Well, that's the question of the paper. I think we could frame the question of the paper as 
as these distances increase, how far is too far to travel? uh, There's this shifting landscape of access. There's a lot of uncertainty. A woman now, for instance, in Houston is many hundreds of miles away from the nearest brick-and-mortar abortion provider, which is in Wichita, Kansas. And the question is, how many people who are seeking abortions and facing those kinds of distances find a way, and how many are trapped by distance, by poverty, by abusive relationships, by childcare constraints, by the myriad factors that could make that type of trip unmanageable for somebody? And then just sort of as a as an accounting exercise on the provider side it sounds like and and it's it makes sense that as some of the trigger bans become enforceable and and some other states pass new bans obviously the number of providers is going to fall do we have a rough count of of how many providers or clinics there are in the country and then how the Dobbs decision uh, likely changed that Yes, we do. So I maintain an abortion facility database. It's at Open Science Framework. It is the foundation of this new paper in JPAM, but anybody can Google just Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, abortion facility database and download a lot of really cool data for their own research. So based on my count, between March of 2022, which is going, I'll say that's before Dobbs, And May of 2023, the number of abortion facilities in this country declined from 805 to 764. So we have a net loss of 41 facilities. Now, a couple of of notes there. I'm giving you a net change, but the, the landscape is actually really complicated by the fact that some facilities that were previously located in states where abortion has has now been banned, they didn't just close, they moved. So, for instance, a facility in Memphis, Tennessee has moved to Carbondale, Illinois. A facility in Bristol, Tennessee popped over the border to Bristol, Virginia. So some facilities have have moved. And the other thing that I, you know, I sometimes worry about when giving that statistic, a net loss of 41 facilities out of 805, like maybe people think that doesn't sound like such a big deal, but this is all about inequality and access. About 15 to 16 million women of reproductive age have been affected potentially by the closures of these facilities because their driving distances have gone up Right. because their nearest facilities have closed. And the average woman who's in this situation is now more than 300 miles from the nearest abortion facility. So it's really an inequality story. There are tons of facilities in California. There are tons of facilities in New York State. They haven't for the most part, closed, certainly not because of bans. But things look very different if you're looking at states like Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, where facilities have closed and now the nearest destination is very far away. This issue of, of moving in response to the ban, I think really highlights the value of the way you measure access in, in driving distance as opposed to just counting providers or something like that. You alluded to it, these closures are going to be concentrated in certain states that act on the Dobbs ruling. And Texas is is you know mentioned several times. Are there any regions of the country that you think are more or less affected by Dobbs? Or is it even like interregion, just like more rural places or something like that? 
Right now, as we're speaking, 14 states are enforcing total bans on abortion. Several more states are very likely to follow suit within the next year. Okay. These states are primarily what people would call red states. They are primarily conservative states across a wide swath of the Deep South and some of the Midwest and West. I, before I lived in very liberal Vermont, lived in earlier in my life in Georgia, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Texas, all of which are banned states that have been very affected by these closures. What's interesting is that not all bans have equal effects on access. And I think that's a piece of this story that, that people might not fully recognize. I'm going to talk about, let's pick Missouri. Missouri is a state that has long been hostile to abortion rights and that is enforcing a ban, and there are no providers left in Missouri. And Missouri residents have experienced virtually no change in travel distance as a result of that ban. Why? They were already essentially living in a post-row world even before Dobbs. Missouri had enacted a set of a series of very restrictive laws that made it difficult to be an abortion facility in Missouri, followed by administrative actions that sought to close the one last facility in Missouri that was still hanging on before Dobbs, which was a Planned Parenthood facility in St. Louis. So that facility was closed by Dobbs, but interestingly, St. Louis is located on the border with Illinois. And there are two large facilities directly across the border from St. Louis that had expanded their capacity prior to Dobbs because they already were meeting a lot of the demand from a wide swath of Missouri. And then kind of on the other side of the state, there were no abortion facilities left in Kansas City, Missouri. There were facilities in Kansas City, Kansas across the border. And so Missouri's ban it closed one facility on a border where there were already facilities just o- across the border in Illinois. It's affected distance very little. On the other hand, urban areas in the Deep South that are really far from those borders with non-banned states have had huge changes in access. So, And it's primarily urban areas, which is interesting, right? Not rural areas. Rural areas already had limited access in the South pre-Dobbs. But places like Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, these were places that had abortion facilities that have now closed. And the people who are living in those cities are really far away from places like Kansas and Illinois, where they can go to reach a provider. Right. I think that is an important point that I, I, I think a lot of people assume that that the big change would happen in relatively remote r- rural places. But the point is well taken that actually there was no change because they already had relatively little access. The example of Missouri, I think, is is fascinating. And I think I vaguely remember there might have been like a 60 Minutes episode or, or some uh, news show sort of special ab- about the Missouri case in particular. And it does make me wonder, do you think that the policymakers in Missouri knew that that this was more of a symbolic thing and that access, they weren't removing access because of the geography of Missouri having clinics on either side of the state line? Well, I don't want to hazard a guess as to what different policymakers know or don't know about abortion. I'm, I'm often surprised, actually. I will say that 
it's really key to understand that Missouri, 10 years ago, there were more providers in Missouri. Mm-hmm. The, the critical fact here is that the policymakers had already largely successfully regulated those providers to the point where they could not sustain the provision of abortion in, in Missouri, and they were gone. The reason they weren't there is because the policymakers had already successfully regulated them out of existence. And so I would imagine that a lot of policymakers were aware of that history, that they had been around for that history, and that they did understand it. I think that Missouri, I would imagine that Missouri policymakers are aware, <laughs> uh, for instance, that St. Louis is on a border with Illinois. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if they saw it as uh, how they saw the impact and if they saw it as, as mostly symbolic or not. Yeah. And we might come back to this issue at the end when we talk about broader policy implications, but this also, I think it's worth noting now, there's nothing illegal about crossing state lines for an abortion. That's true, right? That is currently true. It is also true that policymakers in many states that are hostile to abortion are examining what their legal powers might be to attempt to limit this. I I think it's constitutionally very thorny, certainly comes up against federal powers uh, related to interstate commerce and and other rights. But I think, for instance, Texas SB8, which was a law that, that Texas policymakers enacted the year prior to the Dobbs decision, allowed individuals to basically pursue civil claims and penalties against somebody who helped a Texas resident obtain an abortion. And some people are afraid that interpretations and uses of those types of policies could be used to have a chilling effect on people who might give a friend a ride to another state or loan them some money or watch their kids uh, or basically support them in that decision. But, you know, at this point, there's just a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty there. I guess the, the important point is that it, it's at least being discussed or on the table to try to penalize crossing state lines for, for that reason. Yeah, it's on, it's on the table. I, I don't know what the outcome will be. And currently, large numbers of people seeking abortions are flowing across state lines out of the banned states and into so-called haven states. I'd imagine, aside from the interstate commerce issues, there's also a big sort of privacy question, too, about how would you even know? There's some fascinating, fascinating questions there related to data privacy. For instance, there's some fascinating research questions about using cell phone location data to track people and whether that could be used for these purposes. Folks who have data privacy concerns are definitely pointing to to these possibilities. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty um, there around that side of it, too. So we've talked a lot about sort of why we'd expect supply to fall, at least in some parts of the country, in some states. How affected you are by that depends on where you live and and what states near you are doing. But it, it is safe to say that clinics are have closed and will close as a result of the DOPS ruling. Because of that, we could also imagine that people are going to respond to that by changing their demand in a way that might offset these clinic closures. 
And I think that maybe gets overlooked a little bit in some of the broader discussion uh, about abortion access and, and the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade, et cetera. Um, but what, what's the story there about demand changing in response to all of this? What, what are the ways in which demand might react to this policy change? Seth, this is such a question from an economist to an economist. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> We're, as a field, generally very predisposed to want to ask these questions about behavioral responses and what's, what's you know, how is demand going to change? Some folks give us the side eye when we ask this question, but I will definitely engage it. So, you know, there's a lot of theoretical potential for some important changes in behavior in response to these bans. The first one that I would point to is the possibility that for folks who now have, they know they have dramatically diminished access to abortion, to then decide to reduce risky sexual behaviors and reduce the probability of an unintended pregnancy occurring. So this is a story about what an economist would refer to as substitution from abortion to contraception. So you could imagine, for instance, that somebody wasn't using contraception or who was using a less effective method might go and, and take a look at using a very effective method like a long-acting reversible contraceptive, such as an IUD or an implant. Now, it's interesting. We don't have a complete picture of how people's sexual behavior responds in response to abortion regulation, largely because the data are hard to come by. It's hard to track this. This type of behavior is something where it's hard to count, it's hard to measure, it's hard to ask people, they don't want to talk about it. The limited evidence that we have from the Roe era through the years before Dobbs was that there was very little evidence of changes in sexual behavior in response to abortion restrictions. It just didn't seem to happen. We just didn't seem to see restrictions cause reductions in unintended pregnancy. But I personally am still leaving open the possibility that the shock we've just had coming from Dobbs is one that way more people are aware of. And so maybe this time will be different. So you can imagine, for instance, earlier studies looked at parental consent laws for minors seeking abortions that would that would say if a minor wants to get an abortion, they have to involve a parent. And then they would ask the question, do minors reduce risky sexual behavior rather than have to involve a parent in their abortion? And there wasn't evidence of a very big effect, if any. But I'm not sure how many minors were ever aware of those laws before they were seeking abortions, like paying attention to those at the times they were making decisions about, you know, about sex. It, it might be different now. And so this is one area for academic research. People are working on it, will continue to work on it. It's possible that unintended pregnancies will go down. I'm not really expecting a huge effect, but, you know, maybe, right? I'm a scientist. We'll wait and see. There are a couple of other responses to demand that I think are also really interesting and we do know a little bit more about. So one is when you and I are talking about demand right now, I'm, I'm really talking about abortion facilities in the formal healthcare system in the U.S. But there is another option. And the other option is to self-manage an abortion. You can use a variety of methods, including one that doesn't involve any other person at all, but those methods tend to be very dangerous. What isn't dangerous, what is quite safe and effective, is ordering the medications that are FDA-approved to induce abortion through a provider that's not operating in the formal U.S. healthcare system. Aid access 
is probably the largest of these providers. They ship the medication into banned states from overseas. It is the real thing. It is safe and effective. So there's this question, will more people who are trapped start substituting to self-managed abortion? We know that inquiries to aid access went way up after Dobbs from data that they've published and Abigail Aiken has analyzed. We don't know how many of the requests and that were being sent to aid access ultimately translated to self-managed abortions, partly because it takes two to three weeks for the medications to reach the banned states. And there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that people in the banned states who were kind of desperate to figure out how to access abortion services were ordering from aid access, which doesn't cost a ton of money and also has a sliding fee scale, but then also potentially not wanting to wait that long and then trying to make appointments and be seen somewhere else. So, you know, we really don't know. What I can tell you is that this was an option even before the Dobbs decision. And before the Dobbs decision, at least, most people who were trapped by distance and unable to reach facilities were not self-managing their abortions. So the question is, has that changed? And we'll have to see. This medication that gets shipped in, is that illegal in any U.S. states? Or is it only banned in the banned states? Yeah, I think not being an attorney myself, I'm not going to give you a definitive answer on that on that question. There's some intense conversations. But I mean, there, I guess what I'm saying is there's there's some reason that it's coming from overseas, no matter what state you live in in the U.S. Well, so this is interesting. Aid Access also provides medication abortion in states that aren't banned states, but there it's doing so legally as a formal healthcare provider because telehealth is available there. It can mail these medications there. It's not coming from overseas. It's not taking two to three weeks is my understanding. My understanding is that it's only when these medications are being shipped into banned states that they have been primarily coming from overseas. Although with new shield laws that are being enacted by legislatures in some states like New York and Vermont, it's likely the case that some U.S. healthcare providers will start shipping the drugs into banned states as well with a little bit of legal shielding from their home state. But it's very hard to observe and count that happening. So there's a couple different reasons then that demand might fall a little bit you know, again, specifically defining demand for an in-clinic abortion. But I, I think I, I generally agree with you that I can't imagine a world where where the demand totally goes away and people totally substitute either towards less risky sex and or seeking these other um, alternative, the drug, self-managed abortion but I, I do think it's worth noting that you know people are people react to to the world that they're in, and, and so there there might be a little bit of that at least. So shifting gears a little bit then to like what what do we already know about these questions from other research? I'm familiar with a couple other studies uh, similar to yours from the pre Dobbs period that specifically studied state level policy changes. And I'm most familiar with with a study from Texas, but you know, basically, 
the study in Texas, and I think there's a few others that, that you can speak about as well, they look at what happened when a state made some changes that caused some clinics to close that then increased driving time for residents of the state. What were the sorts of policy changes there and, and what did those studies find? Yeah, so there are some really interesting pre-DOP studies. They primarily come from natural experiments, meaning kind of sudden shocks to access in Texas and Wisconsin. From a policy perspective, those studies were really important because at the time, before the Dobbs decision, states that wanted to regulate abortion, their their regulations were being evaluated by federal courts under an undue burden standard which essentially meant that the courts were asking the question, look, we understand that states have legitimate interest in regulating healthcare markets, but let's weigh that against the obstacles that these particular regulations might place in the paths of people seeking abortions. So for instance, if a regulation is going to close a bunch of facilities in a state and increase driving distance, is that too much? Is that too great of an obstacle or an undue burden? And for decades, courts had been considering that question in a really speculative and, frankly, unscientific manner, kind of guessing, how far is too far to drive? What's a burden? And finally, we had several teams of economists start to answer exactly that question. So the first group studied this natural experiment that occurred in Texas in 2013. Texas enacted a law called HB2 that is commonly called a trap law for targeted regulation of abortion providers. It was a law that was really, I think, transparently designed to make it much more costly and difficult to be an abortion provider. The two key provisions that did that were an admitting privileges requirement for physicians, in the case of Texas, it's always physicians providing abortions, who had to, under this new law, have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of where they were providing abortions. And then secondly, an ambulatory surgical center standard for the facilities providing abortions that meant that they had to invest in some really expensive and largely unnecessary physical capital investments to provide abortion. Long story short, as that law started to be enforced, half of Texas's abortion facilities closed pretty much overnight on November 1st, 2013, so that all of a sudden, there's just been this huge shock to access in Texas. Now, in some cities, there are providers with admitting privileges who are hanging on, and distance hasn't changed, cities like Dallas and Houston. But in other places in Texas, all of a sudden, distance has just shot up because, for instance, if you're in McAllen, nobody can meet the requirement. If you're in Corpus Christi, nobody can meet the requirement. It closes. So there's several teams of economists, including Fidel Gonzalez, Stephanie Fisher, Heather Royer, Corey White, Jason Lindo, Scott Cunningham, and me, who have written papers looking at that natural experiment. And I think in a lot of ways that literature is a fantastic example of how science works because you have these independent teams working on this question. They are all roughly saying as distance goes up, what happens to abortions, but they're adopting slightly different approaches. They're independently working on the analysis. It should be very reassuring to all of us that they reach convergent results. They all reach essentially the same conclusion, which is that an increase in driving distance, 
of even 50 miles can prevent a substantial minority of people seeking abortions from reaching providers. And courts that had previously talked about 200 miles as being too far really weren't understanding the circumstances that people are in when they are seeking abortions, because these papers were finding that 100 miles could stop a fifth to a third of people seeking abortions from reaching a provider, just a whole lot of people. To follow up on that and kind of check the external validity of that result, in other words, is that just true in Texas? Somehow, tex- Are Texas women somehow like uniquely responsive to driving distance. Seems unlikely to me having lived in Texas. Everybody in Texas drives a lot. Things are far apart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very it's a very car-centric state. It's a big state, lots of highways. But a second team, Joanna Venator and Jason Fletcher at the University of Wisconsin, used a really similar approach to study the effects of facility closures in Wisconsin because of regulations there and reached almost, you know, kind of exactly the same conclusion. And so we knew even before Dobbs that distance mattered, that distance stopped people seeking abortions from reaching abortion facilities, at at least in those two states. And you're taking a similar approach to study things and and project what would happen at the national level. In your study, then, when you're building on these other studies that you've mentioned, what are the different outcomes that you're going to study? Like, what are are we looking at? Yeah, so I'll ask your question a different way. Why do we even need another study if we have these early studies? (laughs) Okay. And so, you know, I want to be really clear, like, I, I am standing on their shoulders, although as one of the authors of one of the earlier studies, there's some contortion involved there, but I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of these earlier studies, but also able to answer some really important additional questions about the impacts of distance. So the earlier studies, first of all, were unique to two particular states. And so if we want to understand if that result is generalizable, it's really nice to be able to expand the geographic scope of an analysis. And I think very importantly, it's also crucial that we understand how many of those, let me call them missing abortions, the abortions that don't happen or that we don't count because of distance, how many of those actually translate to a birth? Because there's some real questions when you're using abortion surveillance data about whether what you're seeing in a reduction in abortions in vital statistics data really reflects somebody not getting it, or whether what's happening is they're they're traveling somewhere else where we're not able to observe that they got an abortion, like they're going to a state that's not sharing that information back with any public health authorities, or they're self-managing the abortion. And so to really understand what happens in the end to the people who are who are struggling to navigate long distances, we need to count births. And these earlier studies, either they either had very imprecise estimates of the effect of births because of statistical power issues, or they, they had nothing at all. And so my study is the first one, because it can leverage every birth certificate issued in the U.S. in the last 10 years, it can leverage really large data, I'm able to get precise estimates of what happens to birth, right? So I'm able both to confirm earlier results on abortions and look at that next step and say how many people then carry pregnancies to term. And is this data 
hard to access or publicly available? Or where do you get this sort of data? So I'm really looking at two outcomes. I'm looking at abortion counts and I'm looking at births. And right. the answer for births is, is a much easier answer. So let me start there. It's not public, but for an academic researcher, it is relatively easy to access. So the CDC maintains birth data. They are individual files called natality files. In the public data, you don't know. They, they, they take away any identifying information. So there's never a name or a street address or anything like that. But they also actually, in the public data, don't even tell you what state the birth occurred in. If you're an academic researcher, you can go through an application process to have state, and in my case, I had county identifiers added to the data, which is what I needed to be able to conduct this analysis. And so you are accessing it under a strict data use agreement. They're making sure that the data remain confidential and protected, but they don't charge for that, which is often one of the big barriers for new researchers. And you can... Once you go through this process and you have an approval, you can work with the data on your own institution's machine at no cost. So I would say not public, but this is something researchers could do, other researchers could do. Interestingly, the abortion outcomes are a lot harder. And the reason is, unlike births, where there's actually a federal mandate birth certificates be created and shared back to the CDC, there's no requirement that states even count abortions. So whether to do so is completely up to every individual state. Three states don't do it, including California, which is a really big state. They do not surveil abortions. There are no pub, like official abortion statistics from California. Most states do, but they have different standards and practices. They will give all of their data to the CDC, which publishes abortion surveillance reports. But with really important, it's like I would say, read those footnotes, really important footnotes about variation across states in the quality of the reporting. So what I do in this paper, I'm using birth data, which I would characterize as very high quality and reliable. I also put together county level abortion counts for this paper which are not published by the CDC, I have to go to every individual state health department and collect county-level abortion counts from them for the states that collect it. And so I put that together, and I've published that as part of the replication files for this paper, but with a caveat that these abortion data, I, I think it's useful well worth conducting this exercise, but I just always want to put kind of a big asterisk by them and say they're not as high quality data as births. I think it, it's useful partly because we already talked about the, there's other reasons that, that births might go down that are not necessarily due to abortions. So it's, I think it's useful to have that check, um, even if the data might not be quite as, as high quality. In terms of the methodology, you mentioned a, a natural experiment. This is the, the common method we've seen on the podcast before, known as a difference in difference analysis. And it's pretty similar to what was done in Texas and, and the other studies you mentioned. And the intuition is that you're going to compare these outcomes, whether it's the birth outcome or the abortion outcome, at the county level, you know, in a given county, before and after something happened that changed access to abortions. And then you're going to look at what those changes look like in counties that were more and less affected. Is that roughly what you're doing here? 
I think that's a, a very accurate and fair description of difference in difference. Okay. And, and so difference in difference, again, we've, we've seen it several times before because it's a pretty common tool in, for this type of, of policy analysis where policies are enacted at the state or county level. And they hinge on a, a, on an, a very important assumption. In other words, their validity requires something called the parallel trends assumption, which means that the treated and the non-treated counties would have otherwise been trending in a similar way or having similar patterns in births or similar patterns in abortions. What does that assumption look like in this particular case? And why is it so important that we at least, you know, kind of believe it? Yeah, so great question. Let me frame this in terms of birth outcomes just to keep things as clear and unclunky. I might have just made up that word as possible. So let's think about births. What this methodology that I'm using essentially does is say in a county where distance has just increased, do births increase more than we're seeing them increase in other places in the country where abortion access hasn't changed. That's the idea. Right. Yep. Now, the concern, and we should all, you know, we should all play devil's advocate. We should all be critics. We should all say, but what if? So here's the concern. The concern is, suppose you do see that births are going up more in places where abortion access is declining than in the rest of the country. Maybe that was going to happen anyway. Maybe, and I'll, I'll tell you a few stories where that's true. Maybe these are places where, for a variety of reasons, for instance, changing religiosity, people are experiencing unintended pregnancies just don't want abortions anymore, right? Like maybe their demand for abortions is going down. And that's why we're seeing births go up, not actually because of the policy restriction. In that story, the policy restriction itself is just another outcome of changing social mores, for instance, right? That's a kind of reverse causality story. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just that there's some other factor that I wasn't aware of that was causing births to go up differentially in these particular types of places compared to the rest of the country. So we worry about this a lot when we're exploiting natural experiments because we're essentially, we need to worry about what we don't know as scientists. But luckily, we have an increasing number of tools available to us to really assess those assumptions. And I don't want to kind of dive too deeply into the technical weeds. But what I would say is, I think I do a, a pretty thorough job in the paper of pulling out every single one of those tools and applying it and feeling quite reassured that, that that's not the story that is happening here. In other words, that there is not, to use the technical term, a violation of, of common trends. And I agree. I, I think the paper is quite compelling in that regard. You sort of, uh, in the paper, I think, rule out these alternative explanations for the results that you find, which kind of then in turn suggests that, that what you are finding is the causal effect or the result, the direct result of the policy change that led to an increased driving distance. And then on top of that, another reason I think that your results are so compelling and believable is that they're pretty consistent with what the other studies have found in other contexts. So yeah, I think you do a very nice job of uh, addressing this difficult and thorny problem to estimate the effect of, of driving distance. So one last 
sort of methodological question I had is a lot of these analyses are at the county level. So what exactly does it mean to say that distance in the county increased when not everyone in the county lives in the same house? That right, People live all across the county. So uh, how are you and, and related studies sort of addressing that problem? And, and how do you measure driving distance to the nearest provider at the county level? Yeah, I love this question. So I'll, I'll say transparently that if I had my quantitative druthers and could just get the ideal data every time, I would do the analysis at a smaller spatial level than a county. There's nothing stopping me from calculating distances at smaller spatial levels. But what stops me from doing the analysis is I can't get access to abortion or birth counts at a smaller spatial level than the county. So that's still pretty good. It's still, I think, a completely reasonable approach. It just, that's where we are. And I think it's plenty good enough. So how do you calculate these distances? So there's two basic approaches you could take. Imagine, if you will, a county. And while you're imagining a county, I'd like you to imagine its borders. And I'd like to make make it some make it some wild shape. I don't want some, some nice symmetric shape. Make it some wild shape where it sticks out in lots of different directions, like a a West Virginia kind of county with lots of interesting borders. What you could do is find what's called the the geographic center of that county. If you had that cut out of the county and you had a little pin and you were putting it around underneath the county, the geographic center would be the place where the county balanced flat on the pin. That's one thing you can do. It's perfectly possible when you do that that the geographic center will have nothing to do with where anybody actually lives. That so could be like like some place where nobody is at all, very rural place. It's actually possible it's not even within the borders of the county, which is kind of interesting if it's a really wild shape. So I don't love using geographic centers. Instead, what I do is use the population center. So keep your county balanced on your pin, but now on top of your flat county, put all of the people who live in the county there. They're all just like equal little weights and put them exactly where they live, where their houses are. The population center of the county is where it still balances flat on the pin. And while this is not completely technically correct, I think it's fair enough to say, think of this as where the average person in the county lives. I think that's a pretty reasonable origin point for this calculation. So I'm starting with that population center where the average person in the county lives. And then I have from my own database, I have the geographic coordinates of every publicly identifiable abortion facility that is open on any given day in the last 12 years. I know where all those facilities are. And I use the HERE API. I've used a mapping API. You can think of like what happens when you use Google Maps to map out a a driving route. I've used it to calculate what is the driving distance from that population center of the county to every abortion facility in the country that's open on a given day, which is a lot of driving distances. And then I just say, which is the smallest? That's the nearest facility. And so basically, I'm calculating from where the average person in the county lives, if they're driving to obtain an abortion, what's the nearest facility that they could reach? And so those are the distances that I that I use. And then in my models, you know, I'm lining them up with county level outcomes like births. So I think it, it makes a lot of sense to base it on, on where people live. I, I assume it's too much 
like you're not going to there's there's probably another level where you might predict like who who's most likely to be considering an abortion or something like that and that might vary within the county other than just where the, the general population is that's true, but I also would be a little reluctant to do that because that itself is going to shift and change with abortion access because people with more resources would be more likely to get out. And so it's really hard. Like we have no way to count just in census data who wanted an abortion and didn't get one, right? And so I think it's I think the the more reasonable starting place is just let's just say where does the average person in this county live? Yeah. Totally fair. And, and at some level, it, it has to be tractable, too. So mm-hmm. the technical bits aside, let's get to the results here. I guess we've already hinted that you find similar results to some of the other studies. But, but what exactly do you find in your new analysis? A key piece of what the earlier research found that I also found is that there are nonlinear effects of travel distance. So what does that mean? Well, Suppose we're starting with an individual who's living zero miles from an abortion facility. It's kind of weird. It means they're basically living on top of one, right? But we'll start there. They're living on top of an abortion facility. That facility closes. The next nearest facility is 100 miles away. Mm -hmm. 20% of people who are facing that situation, that increase from zero to 100 miles, can't get there. That's what my paper shows. And that supports earlier evidence about these really large effects of distance. Now, suppose then that the facility that's 100 miles away also closes, and then the next facility beyond it is another 100 miles, right? So now we're talking 200 miles away total. Well, the first 20% of people who couldn't go 100 miles, it doesn't matter to them. They They can't go the next 100 either, right? So there's no additional effect for them. They were They were already trapped. They're still trapped. But there's going to be another group of people who's newly trapped by that next 100 miles. What I find in my work is that it's another 13% of people seeking abortions. So an increase from zero to 100 miles stops 20% of people who want to get there. An increase from zero to 200 miles, that stops about 33% of people who want to get there. So... That's what's called a diminishing marginal effect in our field of economics. And I think it's really intuitive that people who are initially trapped, like at that point, the clinic might as well be on the moon. They're still not getting there. What we've all found is that there appears to be increasing effects of distance in blocking people out up until the point that the nearest facility is about a day's drive away. And at that point, based on current research, additional increases beyond about 400 miles, we don't have evidence that they have any additional effects. Basically, the people who are going to get trapped have gotten trapped, and the people who can travel that far can also travel farther is the evidence from the early literature and from my paper. But these are really big effects. And I think sometimes when we talk about these effects to economists, they they almost seem a little surprised, skeptical at how large they are. And like the standard thing for an economist to say to me uh, and to these other authors, at least five or 10 years ago before we had so much evidence, would be, well, if obtaining an abortion is, is so important, why wouldn't people figure out how to get there? And I think that's a question that really reflects some 
kind of class blinders about the situations that people are in when they seek abortions. So among the population of people seeking abortions, 50% are living below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. 75% are low income. More than half are already parenting children. More than half are reporting that they've just lost a job or they're behind on the rent or there's some other disruptive life event. And we know from new research from Laura Wary, uh, Sarah Miller, and Diana Green Foster that most of them are also very credit constrained, right? So this is a group that is poor, they're credit constrained, and I don't think it should surprise us that a significant number of them don't find a way to reach a facility. Yeah, no, I agree. And I this reminds me a lot of a uh, podcast we did I think last year with Carolyn Heinrich, who was studying the inability or the, the trouble that many folks faced in Tennessee trying to get their SNAP benefits or, or other social welfare type benefits. And that was a matter of driving maybe 20 minutes to an office in town. Um, and they talked about childcare, reliable car, reliable transportation, taking time off work, having a flexible enough work schedule. There's definitely a lot going on that would make going 30 or 50 miles hard, let alone 200 miles and, you know, having a whole day trip or, or whatever. So I, I do think that, that the results are, are plausible in that sense when we think about sort of holistically about all the coordination costs and time costs and financial costs associated with with traveling a far distance. These are, are striking results and they they reaffirm and expand on what, what we thought we knew about this stuff from a, a couple of isolated states. The other really interesting part of your paper is that you do have this data on births. What do you find there? So there we see really clear evidence that the reductions in abortions line up and result in increases in births. So the estimates are quite precise and suggest that that first 100-mile increase results in a 2% increase in births. If you do a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation, that suggests that roughly three-quarters of the people who were trapped by distance, not able to reach a facility, gave birth as a result nine or so months later. So that Maybe a few of them have spontaneous miscarriages. Maybe a few of them are self-managing abortions. Maybe there's some change in sexual behavior that reduced pregnancy rates to begin with. But overall, the evidence shows a very substantial and sustained increase in births that suggests none of those other factors played a very big role, at least before Dobbs, and that most of the people who are trapped give birth as a result. So I think that that's obviously an important result, and I think it it helps provide additional context and understanding of the abortion result too, which is quite a nice and important contribution of your study. The other nice contribution of your study is not just looking outside of one or two states, but also looking towards the future. And I think a lot of the interest, both among the public and policymakers, is trying to anticipate and think about how the Dobbs ruling is going to embolden some state legislatures to enact 
more or more aggressive bands and things like that. So what do you find there in terms of, you know, looking forward over the next five or 10 years in terms of how many more women are, are likely to be affected and what is that effect likely to, to look like when it comes to births or abortions and things like that? Yeah, so I'm really able to conduct what I'll characterize as a, as a thought exercise, which is if the behavior of people seeking abortions in the decade leading up to Dobbs can help us predict their behavior after, then how many people are likely trapped and what, as a result, are the likely changes in abortion and birth rates in this country stemming from the Dobbs decision? So to do that exercise, I really have to take two steps. The first step is to calculate how the Dobbs decision and the resulting bans are changing driving distances in each U.S. county. It's pretty straightforward. Right now, 14 bans are being enforced. So one version of this is I just, they're already closed. I close all of the facilities that have closed or stop providing abortions in these states. I recalculate driving distances so that I know what their driving distance was before Dobbs and what it is now. There's another version of this where I say, we're not done, right? These legal battles are ongoing. So we're not done. Right. We've got forecasts of when we are done, how many states ultimately are likely to ban abortion. And some of the best forecasts, which are coming from Guttmacher and the Center for Reproductive Rights, suggest that probably another nine or so states are going to follow suit and ultimately ban abortion when the dust settles. So a second version of this exercise, I go ahead and hypothetically have the facilities in those states also stop providing abortions and calculate those distances. So I've got two scenarios, basically. I call them the current ban scenario, and then I've got this hypothetical forecasted ban scenario. And in both of them, I know how distances have changed. So then what I can do is take what we've learned about the effective distance from the analysis and plug it in to these forecasted changes in distance and say, okay, how many people are likely to not be able to reach an abortion provider and how many people are likely to give birth as a result. Depending on how you look at them, you might think that the numbers are small or you might think that they're they're staggering. And so I'll, I'll give you kind of both takes on the result. Mm -hmm. Here's the small take. I forecast with this approach that the current bans will result in about a 3% decline in the national abortion rate. That might sound really small, just 3%. Why? Well, most of the U.S. population hasn't been affected by a ban. Only about a quarter has been affected, right? So 75% of people seeking abortions haven't been affected yet. Mm -hmm. Then of the people who have, most of them I'm estimating are getting out. I'm estimating that about three quarters of the people who've been affected will find a way to travel and about a quarter are going to be trapped. So overall effect on the national abortion rate it's about a 3% decline. Now, if we go to the full forecasted scenario where the other states also enact bans, I forecast about a 9% decline in abortions. So in some ways, I think people kind of hear that and they think, oh, that's, that's actually, that's not a huge demographic shock. And I think that's true. It's not a huge demographic shock. What it is is a huge equality shock. This is a story about inequality. This is a story about who can get abortions and who can't. Because in terms of raw numbers, what we're talking about is 
in this wide swath of the country, we have what are most likely some of the poorest and most vulnerable of an already poor and vulnerable population seeking abortions who can't get out. And we're talking with the current bans about 30,000 people a year who want abortions but can't get them. In the forecasted ban scenario, we're talking about around 80,000 people a year who want abortions and can't get them. In those localized areas, these are really big numbers. This is a high fraction of the population. And we are forecasting that most of them give birth as a result. So the takeaway here is don't expect a tremendous demographic shock, but do expect a lot of people who are seeking abortions, who are trapped in quite desperate circumstances and are not obtaining abortion services and giving birth as a result. And to try to put some numbers on that inequality or or inequity of those 40 to 80,000 people, are you able to project or or estimate uh, demographic background or socioeconomic status or geographic locale of, of those yeah, it's a great question. So here's here's what we know. We definitely know where they live. So I have maps in the paper that show the most affected places in the country. The most affected places in the country are very likely to be urban areas and banned states that previously had facilities. So they previously had access from facilities that were within 25 miles, but now those facilities have closed And the nearest providers are hundreds of miles away. So some of the most affected places in the U.S. are places like cities in Texas and Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, parts of Idaho. So we know where they live. In terms of the data that we have available, it is more difficult to talk kind of with statistics about who they are, about the demographic composition. What I can tell you is when I use birth data to look at birth outcomes, the largest effects are for young women and women of color. They're women under the age of 25, and they're non-Hispanic Black women primarily. Okay. I don't have measures of poverty, but based on the profile of people seeking abortions and what we know about poverty and credit constraints and its its impacts on being able to travel, it's, it's likely that we're talking about particularly poor populations as well. But I, I can't really pick that up in the data. I mean, it tracks, I think, with a lot of the, the general inequity discussion we've already had that a, a disproportionate number of those affected people are likely to be economically disadvantaged. Yes. Not going out on a limb to predict that this is an economically disadvantaged population. So to recap, these are big effects that are inequitably distributed that might become even bigger in the near future as more states, uh, if more states adopt bans that end up closing clinics. We touched on this uh, in the in the opening, but there's a handful of ways that this might be offset, either by existing clinics moving to different states or the use of these self-managed abortions, which are, are largely ordering this drug from an international provider. Is there evidence of a significant uptick in the use of those self-managed abortion drugs? Or I I know you said it's hard to say because we don't really know when they get delivered, I guess. But what's the anecdotal take on how big that has been and 
how big the usage might be moving forward. Yeah. So let me address both of those. I'm going to start with facilities moving and or opening on borders. Mm -hmm. Certainly that helps address some capacity constraints, but it generally doesn't have a meaningful impact on driving distances for people who are deep in band country, right? A new facility opening in Wichita doesn't really affect driving distance for people coming from Houston. So I don't think those new facilities are likely to have substantial impacts on distance given just the geography of the bands. Yes. Okay. Mail order medication to self-manage abortions, I think, is likely an important factor here. Anecdotally, no interest in mail order medication abortions has increased because we know requests have gone up. But it's not just that we know how lo- don't know how long it took to get there. We don't know if somebody took the, the medication. We don't know if they got an abortion another way. And this is anecdotal, but certainly there's some anecdotal evidence from abortion providers that they're talking to patients who ordered the medication but preferred to have an appointment in person with somebody and ultimately were able to travel and chose not to, to take the medication that was mail-ordered. We just don't know how it plays out for everyone. Some people prefer to access abortion through mail-order medication rather than traveling, and that's always what they would like to do. Other people are less comfortable with it, might, you know, might not feel completely confident, We just don't know how this is going to play out in terms of a net effect. But anecdotally, I expect that it is offsetting some of the predicted shocks to abortion and birth rates. But I'd be very surprised if it was offsetting most of it. I think that's right. And trying to wrap things up and and talk about some of the policy implications moving forward. We already talked about the idea that states might look into banning interstate travel for abortions. Something else that came up in my mind as as I was reading the paper and during our conversation today is that, is there a discussion about contraception and the availability of contraception that the legality of certain types of contraception might be challenged in some of these states? I want to be careful not to go too far outside of my lane as an empirical economist, but certainly it is the case that there's a lot of conversation right now about possible next steps in terms of limiting interstate travel, in terms of limiting mail-order medication abortion, in terms of what the Dobbs decision means for limiting or revoking other (laughs) constitutional rights that had previously been recognized by the Supreme Court, including rights to access contraception. Also, uh, you know, I'll I'll mention, I I feel like it's almost unfortunately in passing, but also with respect to LGBTQ plus rights, there's a lot of questions here about what this precedent invites next. And certainly folks who are interested might want to read Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Dobbs, which addresses it more. You know, he addresses a lot of this head-on, really inviting, I think, some of these challenges. But I'll point to one other place that I think we should be looking, which is the future of access to medication abortion. Right now, we are waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether it will hear a case that just bounced back to it from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals related to the FDA's approval of medication abortion. It's a very complicated case, but long story short, it could, there are scenarios in which it could really limit the ability to prescribe medication abortion 
shut down potentially telehealth provision entirely. Maybe, maybe, depending on how it's decided, it could reduce or eliminate the ability of providers to prescribe medication abortion. It actually could be bigger than Dobbs. And it absolutely will be if the Supreme Court buys and goes for an argument being made in the case that invokes the Comstock Act, a law from the 19th century that bans the distribution of contraceptives and abortifacients across state lines. That seems to me like it's a really out there scenario, like, it, but it's possible. It's a possibility in this case. We, we, you know, we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I think among the several things that the opposition did, it, it opened up many possibilities that 10 years ago probably were not considered very plausible. Nothing seems so outlandish anymore. Yeah. And I, I'm definitely paying attention to the to this this case coming to the Supreme Court. And I suppose if some of those things were to come to pass, you could imagine uh, a, a black market for the medication and things like that, which would be, you know, add another level of danger and things. Well, the danger is a big question, Mark. You know, the most extreme possible outcome is one in which devices and medications can't be legally distributed across state lines. I mean, that impacts severely, possibly even eliminates the legal provision of abortion in the formal U.S. healthcare system. I'm not predicting that that's what comes to pass, but we're, we're talking about possibilities that range to that level of extreme shock. So what's interesting, though, is that I think in a lot of ways – that type of decision would just increase the importance of provision from places like Aid Access, which are not U.S.-based and are shipping from outside of the U.S. It's certainly a gray market. It's, you know, the legality there is is question mark. It's not unsafe. It's not unsafe, and I think that's really critical for folks to know that it really has been shown from organizations like Aid Access to be safe and effective if people are able to obtain it without detection. And it's certainly not what everybody seeking an abortion wants for their abortion services, right? It's not their preference, but it, it is an option. Thank you for clarifying that. I guess I when I said unsafe, I was thinking more, you know, if you're buying it from someone you on the street, more or less, that and you don't know exactly what you're even buying. I think that's true. And I think if the Comstock Act is actually invoked in this respect, that it could limit the availability of information about abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would also make it more unsafe because it would become more difficult for people to differentiate legitimate gray market providers from other providers who might be seeking to you know, exploit them. On that note, I think one of the last questions uh, I've been thinking about and, and curious to hear your take is, so what would you suggest that state legislatures do both in less restrictive states that are hoping to preserve access? And just as importantly, what kind of advice would you offer to, to states that are inclined to be more restrictive that still want to maybe do what they can do to provide safe access to at least some situations? Yeah. So let me start with less restrictive states like the one where I currently live, Vermont. States that are generally, their political environments generally supportive of abortion rights should be thinking about how to protect 
possible state, like local healthcare providers who want to provide abortions to banned states, for instance, through passing shield laws to try to shield them from legal repercussions from other states. They should be thinking about that. But also, I'll, I'll be honest, there's not a whole lot they can do right in our system. There's not a whole lot a state like Vermont can do with respect to bans being enacted in other places. I think that the most they can do is look to their own constitution, their own laws, and see where they can shore up long-term abortion protection in their own state. Now, in the states where they're clearly, they already have a ban or they're hostile to abortion rights, or, you know, I, I suppose it's it's just a little more uncertain what the future holds. One of the things I've long found really difficult to understand, and I'll pause and say, I come from red states. I come from conservative rural South in Appalachia. I am of these places. I came of age in these places. I voted in these places. I've never understood why there isn't more support for poor women and children accompanying opposition to abortion. I really do understand that there's deep ethical divisions on abortion and that people on both sides, there are people on both sides operating in good faith with really thorny questions. Mm -hmm. Given that, what I don't understand is why we can't all agree that we should provide healthcare access, particularly to children, right? Why we can't expand Medicaid, why we can't expand uh, family planning provision, family planning services, why we can't expand Head Start and other childhood education programs. What we know is when you limit access to abortion, the people who are most affected are some of the most vulnerable families in the state. So I would suggest that I would hope that there's some sort of political support for increasing the services available to them. Another thing that I would really encourage policymakers in the public and banned states to consider is the unintended consequences that abortion bans have on providing pregnancy-related care, particularly in high-risk pregnancies. I can't imagine that anybody supporting a ban uh, in a state like Texas also wanted that to mean that somebody who is encountering a significant pregnancy complication that's a major threat to their health in a non-viable pregnancy, can't access care in terminating that pregnancy to preserve their health, their life. But what we're seeing is physicians who are caring for high-risk pregnancies in banned states expressing a great deal of concern and fear. And also I'll mention the hospital boards that manage risk expressing the same thing about providing valid evidence-based medical care for wanted pregnancies. And so I would hope that even in states that are hostile to so-called elective abortions, that they could at least take action to clarify the laws to reduce risks of harm to people who are experiencing significant complications. Yeah, that's a very important point, and I'm, and I'm glad you make it. And I think it's extra important because I asked the question about demand falling and just to sort of reiterate your point, not all of them are elective. And there's certain situations, like you said, where you know, if the mother's life is at risk, it's not really a, a demand question at all. Yeah, abs absolutely. We, the point is that there's this unintended consequence where policymakers don't necessarily understand all the complexities and the uncertainties that accompany pregnancy and childbearing. 
And I am concerned that they have unintentionally tied providers' hands in ways that everybody should be able to agree is not ideal for protecting public health. Okay. The last question I had and sort of related to sort of advice and, and, and ideas for moving forward in a productive way, we talked about the state legislatures who are super important now following the, the Dobbs decision, but what about the providers and the nonprofits that might be working to provide safe access and, and assist women who are seeking an abortion or, or might have trouble accessing one, as well as the general public who are sort you know like struggling to navigate this very divisive and thorny issue. Yeah, there's there's only so much that individuals in this complex and contentious environment can do to maintain preserve access if they want to. But some of the places to look would be first of all there are several funds that support people seeking to access abortion, including supporting their travel, supporting childcare. In the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision, donations poured into a lot of these abortion access funds. Mm -hmm. I think public attention wanes, but those access funds, they, they can't solve everybody's problems that they face as they try to navigate travel, but they absolutely do clearly make a difference to some people who otherwise would have been trapped in banned states. So I think people in the public who want to support abortion access should support, should think about supporting these abortion access funds. In terms of providers, one of the most important thing that providers could think about, and this is big, I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is easy, but this is big, is helping to alleviate capacity constraints in some of the key destinations. Because what's happening right now is that thousands of people are pouring out of banned states every month, and they are not heading, for the most part, to places like New York City or San Francisco. They, for the most part, appear to be driving, and they are driving to nearest facilities, and they are showing up in Kansas, New Mexico, southern Illinois, northern Florida. They're showing up in Virginia. And these places have a limited number of facilities and are struggling with capacity. So I have a team of Middlebury College students who calls every U.S. abortion facility to survey appointment availability. They do it every few months. And what we've consistently seen, for instance, in Kansas is they often don't have any appointments available at all or none available within three weeks. So capacity is a real concern. Mm -hmm. There was a healthcare provider who was based in Ohio who saw that information and got donations and actually began flying into Wichita to provide medication abortion services on weekends and opened a new facility there that really has made a dent in this problem with capacity. I know I know their their appointments immediately were completely full and you know it's still tough to get an appointment in Kansas, but it helped. Providers need to think about if they if they want to take action in providing abortion services, they need to think about where people seeking abortions can go. It's really seeming that there's this front line where they're receiving the brunt of the demand. The other thing I would point to, and this, this applies to everybody, is 
this is simply an important issue to pay attention to. I've been researching abortion for about 20 years, and it's fascinating to me how 20 years ago, it was a bit of an academic backwater and a policy backwater. And people would kind of think like, oh, Roe was decided, you know, at the time 30 years ago, it's a done deal. Why are we still talking about this? And this, in fact, was then and now visibly remains a really important policy arena. And I would encourage folks to simply pay attention to the fact that Dobbs wasn't the end either. It's not over. There's still conversations. There's conversations about shield laws, about state bans. There's conversations about mifepristone. There's crucial conversations about privacy and data privacy that could have everything to do with the practical enforcement of attempts to limit interstate travel. And I would simply say, we're in a democracy. We should all pay attention. And I know you mentioned the data collection site that you run, but in, in the spirit of, of people paying attention, do you want to plug that site and, and any other good resources one last time that, that people might want to check out? Absolutely. So for academic researchers, data viz enthusiasts, and anybody else who just likes a good data set in your audience, people are, are pouring into this field. There are good data available publicly that are useful and we need more people working in this area. I'll plug some of my own. In particular, there's the Myers Abortion Facility Database published at Open Science Framework. It is a panel of county-level driving distances uh, observed monthly from January 2009 to present. I also have a process where you can apply to access the restricted data that identify the providers under a, a data use agreement. There's also, I've published publicly my county-level abortion counts that were collected from health departments as part of this paper in JPAM. It's in the replication package. It's at Open Science Framework. Go get it. I am publishing data on state abortion regulations, including bans, mandatory waiting periods, parental involvement laws at Open Science Framework. And soon I will be publishing appointment availability survey data for use as well. So the data are out there. That said, I do want to add the caveat that quantitative analysis, good, high-quality quantitative analysis requires historical and contextual and policy knowledge. You can't do it in a vacuum, right? Just because you can open a big data set in a statistical software program and run a regression doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the tools to understand the result. So the other thing I would encourage academics who want to be involved in the field to do is start reading very widely to begin to acquire knowledge on that policy history context. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And um, it's it's a great service that you're doing by making those different data sets and, and data sources available. Overall, I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and rigor with which you approach this emotional and contentious and, and politically charged topic. I think your paper has a, a lot of useful and interesting background, um, even outside of the specific analysis you do, that people interested um, in these issues will will find valuable. Uh, I know I did. Is there any one last point that we might have missed or, or a thought you'd like to leave our listeners with? I think we have covered so much. I really appreciate how in-depth this has been and how much opportunity you've given me to talk about the nuance that accompanies this work. That's been really, that's been really gratifying. For your listeners, I would watch the Mifepristone case that's coming to the Supreme Court. 
it could be a very big deal. Well, there you have it. Well, thanks again. I, this was probably one of our longer podcasts, but I there was a lot of uh, important stuff to talk about for sure. So again, our guest today was Dr. Caitlin Myers, the John G. McCullough Professor of Economics at Middlebury College and a research fellow at ICA, Institute of Labor Economics. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.